Today's scripture reading is in Romans chapter six, verses one to five. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. This is the word of God. How many of you guys have heard about Tom Brady's departure from the New England Patriots? This is huge—a quarterback who many consider the greatest of all time, who started his career in New England, will now, after spending 20 successful seasons with them, leave the team to join another, namely the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The old life as a Patriot is gone. Brady's now a Buccaneer. There were reports that that he was going to rent a house from Derek Jeter, which makes sense. It's time to pack up his family and move to Florida, and represent the city of Tampa Bay. I'm a Giant fan myself, but some of you guys, like me, are, are anticipating that first game where Brady steps on the field as a Buccaneer, that bright red Tampa Bay jersey with the New England Patriot helmet. I'm looking forward to see Bill Belichick standing on the sideline calling the plays. Of course not. <laughs> That would be ridiculous, right? Tampa Bay jersey, Patriot helmet, old coach calling the plays—how ridiculous would that be? This is a denial of the new reality that Brady has won allegiance now, and it is not New England. It is not New England. Make no mistake about it, Church. For this 2020 season, Brady has died to that old Patriot life. If he is going to sign that contract and become a Buccaneer, it is. It goes without saying, he will have a new coach on the sideline during his games. He will wear the full Buccaneer uniform. His check, which is, by the way, a ridiculous amount, will not by will not be written out by the Patriots organization, but Tampa Bay. Bottom line, like it or not, for this 2020 season, Tom Brady is a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. He has a new journey, a new labyrinth, as Pastor put it last week. The old Patriot pride has died. His goal is to lead one team to the Vince Lombardi Trophy, and that team is Tampa Bay. In a similar way, if you have been justified before God, your old life in Adam has died, and you have been joined to Christ, whether your family accepts it or not, whether your friends understand it or not, or not. The reality is, you belong to Jesus Christ. Will you find yourself going back to that old way of thinking on occasion? Will it take you some time for you to be assured or and comfortable as this new creation in this new creation of Christ that you are in? Just like Tom Brady, you might be tempted to give the old coach Belichick a call before a game to get some advice. But what they both will understand is they have separate. Allegiances now. Belichick bleeds red, white, and blue, and Brady just got cut 
red, black, and white. Church, Christ is not an addition to your life. He is your life. You cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. In Romans 13, 14, God calls us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Like Tom Brady will not be wearing one team's jersey and another team's helmet, we as Christians are called to die to our old life and live a new Christ-centered path. We see in today's text that Paul's answering those who have twisted the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He has been to many synagogues. He has walked with the Gentiles. He has spent time traveling through Gentile areas. He knows that people are misunderstanding the gospel message. Now as he just spent two and a half chapters teaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, after hammering into the heads of the readers that Christ's righteousness has been imputed, credited to the believer's account by faith, he anticipates the pushback. He knows there's an objection to be dealt with. By way of context, let me remind you of the last two verses in chapter 5 coming into these words in chapter 6. Verses 20 through 21 reads, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are a couple ways this passage can be perverted, church. It goes like this. I've been justified freely by the grace of God. If I sin again, I shall be forgiven again by grace. And the more I sin, the more God will be glorified as He shows His grace. And and love is limitless. But in light of the context, church, I think it's more likely that Paul is answering an attitude we commonly see today that say something like this. I know dating an unbeliever is a sin. But what we are... We are not, as Christians, under the law anymore. We are under grace. I'm still saved. My sins are paid for. Jesus is my Savior. I never said I'll have a a mansion in heaven anyway. A tent is good enough for me. They would probably go to this text, church. Sin increased, grace abounded more. As J.D. Greer puts it, this type of professed believer thinks they have a divine visa card called the blood of Jesus with an unlimited balance that, that we can just ring up sin whenever we want. But the truth is that those who have this attitude do not understand salvation. They answer back when hearing the gospel of grace. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? We proclaim as Christians with the Apostle Paul, by no means. Or as the King James puts it, King James, King James Version puts it, May it never be. So my hope, my prayer this morning is that God will grant us eyes to see why this question, shall we sin so that grace may abound, is a rebellious high hand to God and a clear sign that many do not understand what salvation truly entails. So the theme of my message this morning, church, is this. Salvation is more than forgiveness of sins. We have been united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection, giving us the power to walk in newness of life. Hence the title of the sermon, New Life in the Church. 
And we know, church, from last week, what do we know? That this is only possible because of one word. Grace. This is the acronym that I will use today in my sermon. Grace. G-R-A-C-E. Hopefully it will, re- it will help you guys remember these five points. So let's begin with the first point of the sermon. Notice the letter G stands for grafted into Jesus Christ. Church, we are grafted into Jesus Christ at conversion. Consider verse 5 in our text. For, we, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. A glorious and powerful doctrine that explains that at salvation, we get all of Christ. Or the whole Christ, as theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it. In his book, Systematic Theology, Louis Burkhoff defines union with Christ as this, quote, the intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength of their blessedness and salvation. Make no mistake about it, church. Conversion is not merely justification. If you are saved, God chose to place his saving love before you were even born. He brought the gospel to you, packed with Holy Spirit power that day of conversion. You were born again by the Spirit of God, raised up, raised up in new spiritual life. And with that new heart, you turn from your your rebellion and place your faith in Christ alone. And became immediately declared righteous before the Almighty God. And we made, we were made holy and perfect in God's sight. Forgiven of all our sins. Bottom line, you were brought to Christ. All of this results in our union with Christ. For the rest of your journey, you will become more and more of who you really are. This is sanctification. So union with Christ, let's see what what God has to say about us being united to him in a death and life like his, as verse 5 states. Let's begin to see why sinning so, uh, why uh, living a life of continuing sin, why grace abounds in that is illogical to the believer. Let's see what Paul has to say. There are several ways the Apostle Paul expresses this doctrine in his letters. In the same letter to the Church of Rome, Paul reminds the church that they are like Christ. They are like Christ. Pastor did a great job two weeks ago explaining how all of us, before our conversion, were imitators of Adam. Well, at justification, we are not just declared like Jesus in a legal sense, but our justification flows into sanctification, where we become more and more like Christ. Our memory verse, Romans 8, 17, says it this way. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified in him. How encouraging is this, truth family? During this difficult time with the coronavirus, we are reminded that our union with Christ results in us having a bond of suffering with our Lord Jesus Christ. We are being brought from glory and glory with him. Just like verse 5 states, united with him in a death like his, united with him in resurrection. Another way the apostle explains our union with Christ is by using the term in Christ. Church, Paul uses this term in Christ 97 times in the ESV Bible. Let's run through uh, a few of them.
has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 1 Corinthians 1.30 states, And because of Him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 2 Timothy 1.9, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? May it never be, church. How could we? We are in Christ. Blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are in Christ with righteousness. We are in Christ with sanctification and glorious redemption. We are in Christ saved to a holy calling. In the last example, Paul gives us regarding our union with Christ is we are not only safe to be like Christ and safe to be in Christ, but Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is in us. Is in us. How glorious is that? You want to live in sin so grace abounds? Good luck with that. Your sin, your sin will have you up against the power of Jesus living inside you. Why, who do you think wins that battle? The Lion of Judah, of course. What did we learn last week in Romans 5.17? It said, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Church, our Lord reigns in our hearts and in our souls. He is in us. The Bible says in 15, John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But with Him, as verse 5 tells us, we die to live. My question to you is this. Does your life show that you are in union with Christ? Are you living like Christ during this pandemic? Are you thinking of yourself only like our prior King Satan? Or are you more concerned about others? Romans 5 tells us we have peace with God at justification. This, this assumes at one time we're at war with God. Are you sharing that with your neighbor? Are you sharing that they need to become reconciled to the king of glory? Are you telling your unbeliever friends and family that in a time with, with such hostility and fear that the perfect love of Christ can cast out all fear? Something to think about. Christian, be who you are. Be who you are. As the first point states, you are grafted in Christ. Now the next point of the sermon. The R stands for reign of sin is over. Reign of sin is over. Point two, the reign of sin is over. We're no longer slaves to sin. Notice verse one and two. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's using the rhetorical question here in verse 2. He's not not expecting an answer, church. He's making a statement. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? There's no answer to this. How question. We can't live in sin if we died to it. For some of you kids who are watching right now, hopefully you were reminded on Friday through your devotional 
that if one of your parents says, how are you going to keep your room neat if you throw all your clothes on the floor and never hang them up in the drawers? They're not looking for an answer. They're making a statement. You won't keep your room neat if you throw your clothes on the floor and don't hang them up. This is what Paul's doing here. He's not inviting an issue. He is the authoritative voice making a bold statement to set up powerful truths about our salvation. Notice again what follows in verse 2. By no means may it never be. How can we who died to sin live in it? There are many misconceptions about this phrase here. Some say Paul meant that believers are no longer responsive to sin. Kind of like you're walking down the street and you see a poor cat who's dead on the side of the road. No matter how hard you, you, you give it a little kick, it will not respond. Some think this, this is our life as a believer, that when temptation comes, we, we're so new in Christ that we're unresponsive to sin. Others think Paul means we are dying to sin progressively, that that's what Paul's talking about here. This is true. and As a Christian, we will learn more about this in the weeks to come, that we die to sin progressively. But this is not what Paul means here in verse 2. Others would say that Paul is speaking of the mere guilt of Adam. That's dead. We have died to sin's guilt. But through my studies, I have learned from help of Greek scholars that the verb translated died indicates a single action completed in the past. We have died to sin. In a way, it's just as Jesus did. It's just as Jesus did, we see in 6.10, Romans 6.10. The Bible says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So while he lived up on the earth as a God-man, he was in sin's realm, right? Subject to temptation. But when he died, he left that realm forever. It's the same for us. As a result of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, that old life of sin in Adam is past for us also. We We no longer live in that realm of sin. Bottom line, or as pastor likes to say, we have died to the power of sin. We no longer are slaves to sin. Dr. James Boyce uh, rightly observes, we can never go back to sin. We have been brought from that old life, the end of which was death, into a new life, the end of which is righteousness. We have been changed forever by God. We have been born again. We can no longer become, more become, uh, as an adult can become a child again. We must go forward in the Christian life, living lives of holiness, unquote. Now, let's be clear. Dying to sin, dying to the power of sin, church, no longer walking in the realm of sin, this doesn't mean you'll never sin again. That's heresy. They call that sinless perfectionism. That's heresy. There are several reasons why Paul isn't saying this. We know Paul's not saying this. First off, the chapters ahead are filled with exhortations not to sin. Also, the Bible says in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we know from Scripture and, quite frankly, experience, right? That sinless perfectionism is not biblical. But make no mistake about it, although we still sin in our Christian life, sin is no longer our master. It was when we were in Adam, right? We learned that. We were just reminded of that in chapter 5. Verse 17, where it says how death reigned through Adam. And we know from Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is what? Death. Death reigned because all our sin reigned. What did Paul say about the reign of sin in, in our lives in Romans 1? Do you guys remember this? We were evil. We were malicious, filled with envy, strife, deceit, gossip, heartless, ruthless, 
and so much more. This was our life outside of our relationship with Christ. This was before we were brought to God through faith. But we died to that old life, church. As the second point states, the reign of sin is over. We can't continue to live in sin because we died to the power of sin in our life. We're like Tom Brady. That Patriots playbook will no longer be on his mind morning, day, and night in his dreams. He has a whole new system to learn. And his focus will be on mastering the details of that Tampa Bay system. Will it take time to shake off that old offensive system that that he grew so uh, used to? Of course, but make no mistake about it. His old offensive coordinator will not be on speed dial anymore. He has a new team. The old is gone. The new has come. And we as Christians can't live in sinful lifestyle. A sinful lifestyle that we've been freed from. The Bible says in Romans 6, 20, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, Be careful, church. There's some in evangelicalism that would disagree and say Christians can live in sin. Some actually, some some call them carnal Christians. Christians who have believed on Jesus, but they're still 100% carnal, 100% fleshly. There's no fruit in their lives. They believe they died to sin in the sense that God no longer sees their sin. But again, they missed the fact. That that's only part of justification. That's only a part of it. They miss the resurrected life. They apparently passed over Romans 4, 24 through 25, where Jesus said he was delivered up for our trespasses, but was raised for our justification. Christ's righteousness was not just imputed or credited to us. It was imparted to us as well or passed on to us. Justification is not just legal, but we do change. How can we not, right? How can we not? We're in union with Christ, as we just learned from our first point. Now to our third point, church. Point three. Adam is no longer our federal head. Adam's no longer our federal head. Walking, working on the GRACE acronym, right? G-R, now we're on A. We had grafted into Christ. We had a reign of sin is over. Now our third point, Adam is no longer our representative. Notice verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, Paul is given the answer of why practicing sin is as a Christian, practicing sin as a Christian is illogical. It's absurd. And what does he point to? Baptism. Now, this was an interesting study for me, church, trying to discern what Paul means by baptism here. I know we as Baptists automatically think of believers' baptism. But there are many scholars that say Paul's talking about spiritual baptism here, that at the cross, we as God's elect died with Christ in his death, we were raised with him in a resurrection, and then we were immersed that's what the word uh, baptist, baptism means, immersed. That we were literally immersed into Christ spiritually. Then, at our conversion, God brought that reality into existence. Well, I don't understand the controversy myself, church. I, I don't really get the controversy here. I agree with New Testament scholar Dr. Thomas Schreiner. 
that we died with Christ at the cross. We were raised with Him spiritually. This is true. And following our conversion, what did God do? What did He use to make this tangible, make this a tangible reality? Water baptism. We need to understand, church, that in the New Testament, people did not wait to get baptized. When they understood the gospel, they immediately were baptized into the new covenant by water. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch on his way back from Jerusalem. He's reading Isaiah, one of the Old Testament passages. And Philip led him to Christ. And what did he say right after? See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And Philip baptized him. What prevents you from being baptized? Church, when he asked this question, what prevents me from getting baptized? This is powerful. God gave him new spiritual life. He understood who Christ really was and was quick to make a declaration that he has a new allegiance in his name is Jesus Christ. Kind of like when Tom Brady first became a Buccaneer. Do you really think he, he, he was trying to stop the press to make it official, to declare to the world he has a new team? No, this is his new reality. That needed to be shared with the whole sports world. It's his pastor says, many of the tracks, after explaining what salvation is, they close with telling the reader to go and tell somebody. pastor says it should say, go tell everyone through your baptism. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? We are not saved by our baptism, church. We know that, right? We're not saved by our baptism. We are saved by faith alone. But the call to the world still is repent, believe, and be baptized. There are many stories in the New Testament, like the Ethiopian eunuch, that show us that this truth, that conversion, was synonymous with baptism. Consider Acts 2. Acts 2, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Go tell your neighbor. No, he didn't say that, right? He didn't say go tell your neighbor. That comes later on, no doubt. But the text says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Did you see that? We often see repent and believe. But Peter understood belief is synonymous with baptism. We see Philip, the evangelist, once again, this time in Samaria, in the book of Acts, baptizing those who believe. The Bible says, but when they believed Philip preaching good tidings concerning the good uh, kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Silas and Timothy also led people to Christ the same way. We see in Acts 18, the Bible says, in Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his, his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing believed, and were baptized. Bottom line, baptism was synonymous with conversion. Repent, believe, and be baptized. This was the gospel call, and this should be the gospel call today if we want to be biblical. So I would encourage all of you who are wrestling with this text, is, that, is Paul talking about spiritual baptism or water baptism? To recognize it's both. We have died and were raised at the cross. We experience the spiritual baptism and our conversion, and we are baptized as an outward reality of the inward work of God that already happened. Theologians call it a new covenant initiation rite. 
It's not mere, merely a religious ritual, baptism. I think New Testament scholar Dr. Thomas Schreiner does a really good job in his book, Believer's Baptism, clarifying what we see here in, in uh, Romans 6, 3 through 4. Quote, there was not a serious problem as there is today with Christians being unbaptized in the New Testament. We are asking the wrong question. Therefore, if we ask whether a spirit of baptism is in view in Romans 6, 3 through 4. In my judgment, Paul would have been initially puzzled if we asked him, do you mean water baptism in these verses? He would reply when he understood the question, both. Schreiner goes on to say, those who restrict the reference to spirit baptism in Romans 6 truncate the baptismal message. For separating water baptism and spirit baptism introduces a false dichotomy into the Pauline argument. In Paul's day, virtually all were baptized immediately after putting their faith in Christ. We grasp that both, that both spirit baptism and water baptism were part and parcel of the complex of saving events that took place at conversion. When people are converted, they are baptized in water in the spirit and confess Jesus as Lord. Unquote. Amen. So that's our baptism. So back to our point. Adam is no longer our federal head because we died to that old position at conversion, hopefully at baptism. Back to the context. Remember the flow of the letter, church. Remember the flow of the letter. Paul spent three chapters explaining the sinfulness of mankind. Then after bringing us to justification by faith alone, he brings us to the depths of our problem to show how deep and glorious our solution is. We learned about this in our Sunday school last week with uh, Julius when he taught on uh, federal headship. For those who weren't able to join us, who weren't able to join the Sunday school, federal headship basically means Adam represented us. When we sinned, when he sinned, we sinned. When he died, we died. Our position before God is joined to him before conversion. God put Adam in that garden to represent the whole human race. So Adam represented us. Romans 5.12a says it this way, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and death spread to all men. So from Romans 5.12 through 21, Paul teaches that God deals covenantally with the whole human race under the concept of federal headship, which has to do with representation. That is when one person is acting on behalf of, a, of another. The American legal system usually uses a uh, similar concept called a power of attorney, a written authorization to allow one to represent another for some legal matter. Another illustration would be a health proxy, right? A health, a health proxy would be uh, another illustration there. I'm going to give you a little illustration that I experienced at work. Health proxy, someone who you know, represents a person, makes health care decisions for them when they can't make it for themselves. So at my work, I work as a, a case manager at a supportive housing facility for seniors with mental health problems, drug problems. A few years back, one of my clients became sick with an infection in the, in the brain, which started to spread to his whole body. The doctors knew through our discussions that this particular client of mine had no family. He had no friends to make decisions for him as his disease progressed. <clears throat> It got to the point where the doctors actually, they weren't even sure how much the patient was understanding. Because my job's protocol prohibited me from being his proxy, quite frankly, the doctors felt they didn't have enough time to decide what to do, so they, they found somebody else to be his proxy. 
they asked one of his friends who's, who's been visiting him to be his proxy. They did not know that this man was a drug addict who was using and abusing drugs, and he also had a propensity to steal. I was able to intervene, right, when I found out, after finding out they were close to making that decision to make him the representative. But imagine if they did. Imagine if they did. I found out later he was taking the patient's debit card and clearing the man's account to use it for drugs. He would, this would have been a horrible representative, church. When he was using, he couldn't even hold a sentence. How could he make the important medical decisions for my client? This scenario resembles Adam being our representative before coming to Christ. He brought us nothing but misery and death. But as the point states, he is no longer our federal head, no longer our representative. What does the scripture say about his previous headship over us? In Romans 5, 12a, the Bible says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and death spread to all men. Right? Well, if you're a non-Christian today, you are in Adam. You have inherited death, sin, and eternal damnation. Unless you repent and trust in Christ alone for your Lord and Savior. For those who have died with Christ at conversion have died to that old position. You are no longer in Adam's realm. So shall you go on sinning now so grace may abound? Sure. If you're a false convert and you got baptized to be part of the church or, or to make your parents happy. If your baptism was merely an external thing, a thing, a religious ritual, then yes, you'll go on sinning. But the truth is, grace may not abound. As pastor always says, the more light we're given, the more judgment that we will have. You need to be born again. You need a spiritual rebirth. Right? Isn't that what baptism signifies? What did Jesus say to Nicodemus, the religious leader? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or you can say it this way, Amen, Amen, you must be born again. For those who have been baptized and are walking with the Lord, do not forget, you are no longer in Adam. Tom Brady, do not forget, you're no longer under Bill Belichick. You're no longer under uh, the CEO, Kraft. His rules, their rules, their culture, but Brady has died to that. He has a new coach now, a new owner, a new CEO, a new culture to learn, a new system to get used to. For those of you who have died spiritually and were raised to life, what is keeping you from being baptized? What is keeping you from being baptized? There's something to think about. So in closing this point, if you're tempted to forget what happened to you at conversion, Remember your baptism. You died to the old position, to the old life. Adam's no longer your federal head. Now to our fourth point. Fourth point of the sermon. Excuse me. Christ is our new federal head. This is the fourth point. The C. Christ is our new federal head. We have learned so far three reasons why we cannot continue to sin so that grace may abound. First, we were brought into union with Christ at justification. Second, sin is no longer, no longer has power over us. 
Third, our old position in Adam is no longer our reality. In the first part of baptism, being immersed into the water has declared to the world that the old life, the old nature of Adam is gone. And now we come to the second reality that our baptism illustrates. We have been raised from the dead by the power of God the Father. We have been raised from the dead by the power of God the Father. This is the C part of the acronym. Christ is our new federal head, our new representative. Notice verse A. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, where it says raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Dr. Stephen Lawson states that the glory of the Father is a synonymous expression of the power of the Father. So again, we have been raised by the power of God, and it have been given, He has given us life in His Son, who is our new representative, our new federal head. So this is the second part of our baptism illustration. Buried with Jesus at baptism, raised from the dead. We just learned we died to our new life in Adam. He's no longer our federal head, our representative. Now we are reminded we cannot live in sin and expect grace to abound because we have been raised from dead just as Christ. Remember the health proxy illustration, the drug addict thief, as my client's possible representative. Christ representing us is so much different, church. So much different. His headship would, would be more like me going through my client's contact book and finding the rock star philanthropist Bono's number and giving him a call and learning that they were old friends in, in childhood, right? They were in a high school band together. This millionaire who is known for, for his charitable initiatives flies into New York to become my client's proxy and pays for the best treatment money can buy. My client's bank account doesn't get cleared out like it would have with the, if the drug addict took over, but instead he is medically healed and moves out of the supportive housing and he ends up moving into a more luxurious uh, place. Christ is like that, church. <laughs> he is that kind of representative, but so much better. When we stand before God in judgment, we will see, we will be seen clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will have a perfect representative. We were on a path of misery, death, and eternal rebellion in Adam. The law came to shine a light on the holiness of God and the hopelessness of our condition, but Jesus lived the life we failed to live and died the death we deserve. And God in His timing, He called us out of the world gave us faith and repentance to be exercised by His power through our will and Christ's righteousness became ours. He is our new head. Back to our Brady illustration. How many of you guys think that now that Tom Brady is the main represent, representative of the Tampa Bay organization, that their, that their organization will thrive more? It will be more successful or it will bring in more revenue? Most likely, right? More jerseys sold, more tickets sold to the games. The roster uh, could become better as many free agents will realize Brady gives them a chance to win a Super Bowl. I mean, Rob Kronkowski, the dominant tight end in football for five years straight, just came out of retirement to join Brady. When the Lord of glory stands before God as the Father, as your representative, stands before the Father as your representative, there's nothing greater than you can imagine, church. 
What shall we say then? Should, so should we continue to, to sin so grace may have, uh, abound? Of course not. We have a power of attorney who created the heavens and earth. We have a health proxy who's the greatest physician who has ever lived. As our fourth point states, Christ is our new federal head. Our last point concludes our acronym of grace with the letter E. Eternal life is ours. Eternal life is ours. Here's another question for those kids that are watching. We learned this week that in our devotionals, well, not this week, but we've learned in the past since we started our devotionals that there are two certainties in life. Do you guys remember what that was, what they were? Death and taxes. That's right, death and taxes. Well, there's something more inevitable than those two things. And that is eternal life for those in Christ. Notice verse 4b. After Paul tells us our baptism symbolized the eternal reality that happened at conversion and that we were raised from our spiritual deadness, Paul ends by telling us why. We were raised to new life. Why were we raised to new life? I mean, why did this happen? Why, why did we die? Well, what's the purpose of salvation? We were raised to new life. That we may walk in newness of life. Isn't that what the text says? We may walk in newness of life. The word newness here describes a, a new state of existence. This is of, of a different... It's of a different kind, though. In the Greek language, there are two different words for this. In my studies, I found this out. There's two different words for, 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 new, for, for time. One refers to chronological, chronological time. The other refers to something new. The latter word is the same root word used here, indicating this resurrected life as an entirety, an entire new kind of life. This is not the, the resuscitating of the old man. No. Rather, we receive a completely different life, church, unlike anything we have previously experienced. In fact, it is the actually, it's the actual life of Jesus Christ Himself being lived in us. How radical is that? It is the same resurrection life of Christ that He experienced after He was raised from the dead. Church, this new life is visible. It's visibly seen in our daily walk. At least it should be. It shows that we have a new direction, that our, res, our res, resurrected life gives us a new direction. We will still certainly we'll stumble, right? We'll fall in the Christian life. We will still commit individual acts of sin. But as we learned in our second and third point, we are not under an old master of sin anymore. We've died to that power of sin. It is no longer mandatory that we sin as it was when we were in Adam with that old nature. We're now living under a new master, Jesus Christ, and walking a new walk, heading in a new direction with a new life within us. This is the dramatic change that is brought about in every believer's life. This reminds me again of Romans 4, 25, where Paul says we were raised for our justification, just as Jesus was raised to show our justification is real. And that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the Lion of Judah. Paul shares the same truth in a sense with the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 2. He says in verse 5, we were made alive with Christ. We were made alive with Christ. And then it goes on to say, by grace you are saved. 
How about Colossians 2? Paul says believers were buried, raised, and made alive with Christ. Church, our union with Christ through faith and expressed in baptism entails a solidarity with Christ in His death, which makes us free from slavery to sin. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. Matthew, Matthew Henry explains newness of life this way. Quote, newness of life supposes newness of heart. Walking in Scripture stands for the course and character of one's life, which must be new. Walk by new rules towards new ends from new principles. Make new choices of direction. Choose new paths to walk in. New leaders to walk after. New companions to walk with. Old things should pass away, and all things become new. Such a person is something he formerly was not. Does things he did not. And this newness is to be alive to God through Christ. Unquote. Church, this is why we started the mentorship program. This is one of the reasons why we started this mentorship program, going through the book of Romans. We don't want to be, NBC doesn't want to be a church that just learns who we are in Christ. We need to be a church who shows Christ to our community, to our world, We need to fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples of all nations. This is what the new life is all about. This should make so much sense to us now, church. We have so far learned that we are united with Christ. He is living in us, representing us, working in us. We are no longer slaves to the sin that we used to be slaves to, right? That, that try to distract us from our Savior. God sees us in Christ as, as our new federal head. All of this can only result in new life of holiness, in eternal life living for God's glory in the, the furthering of His kingdom. We cannot practice sinning because Christians are too busy practicing holiness. John Calvin said this way, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith that saves us is never alone. I love medieval movies. How many of you guys love medieval movies? Braveheart, Kingdom of Heaven, Robin Hood. One thing I notice about these movies, though, is when the hero wins back his land from the evil king or the brave peasant fights to free the country from tyranny, the movie ends. Right? It seems like it just ends. We never get to see the rest of the story. I want to know how the humble warrior wins back his land and uses his experience to shape the rest of the generation. How about when we hear testimonies? It's the same way. When we Sometimes when we hear Christian testimonies, how often do we hear how bad we were? And then we were saved, right? We had this horrible life, life of rebellion, then God saved us. What about the changed life? What about the changed life? What about the newness of life that this text talks about? Sure, the power of conversion is awesome. It is awesome. God saves sinners is a glorious thing. He justifies us. It's a glorious thing. But we need to remember that salvation is threefold. We are saved. We were saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. Our eternal life is not just conversion or eternal life. Our eternal life is not just going to heaven. right? Some people just think it's just about going to heaven someday. But our eternal life is now. It is now. Paul says later in verse 19, quote, 
Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity into lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Church, we forget that regeneration, being born again, is not something that happens for us uh, just when we believe. And that's it. We're just born again and that's it. Our whole Christian life is a new birth. We are being made new. That circumcision of the heart that Paul talks about, that's ours. As Pastor informed us last week, we are now on that path of life that Adam ruined for us. That that labyrinth, he called it, that Adam ruined for us. Jesus cleared out the way. He made the way for us. All we need to do is be who we are. Be who we are. What do you think the odds are when the season begins? Tom Brady will put all his hard work in the practice and, you know, do the things that Tom Brady does and then gets placed on the bench for the games. What do you think the odds are that that would happen? (laughs) Of course, not too high, right? That's not going to happen. Tom Brady will play like Tom Brady. He is, what, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. They call him the GOAT. A lot of people think he's the greatest of all time. He's going to play. Brothers and sisters, how can you sit on the bench when you have been brought to life by the Spirit of God? He calls us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Exalt His Son to the world. Church, our theme stated, salvation is more than forgiveness of sins. We have been united with Christ in His death, in His resurrection, giving us the power to walk in newness of life. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so grace abounds? By no means. Church, grace reigns. Grace reigns. We are grafted into Christ. Our reign of sin is over. Adam's no longer our federal head. Christ is our new federal head. Eternal life is ours. Oh, did sin reign when we were in Adam. Oh, did sin reign when we were in Adam. But now, we are in Christ. And we will experience the reign of grace. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your spirit working in us. We thank you for your son. We thank you, God, that you have saved us to a newness of life, that you have given us the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim to the world that you are the Lord of glory, that we are created to glorify you and make you known to the whole world. God, help us. Help us create a passionate pursuit of your glory in us, Lord. We love you, God. We, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your lordship. And we just pray that you will help us walk in this newness of life. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.